This morning's passage is one that I don't remember ever hearing preached, and I don't remember preaching it. So uh, one of the benefits of being um, a pastor uh, in uh, older years is that you have a chance to go back and visit these texts in ways that you didn't before. So thank you for listening in and walking with me through this text. From Genesis 21, 1 through 21, hear now the word of God. God visited Sarah exactly as he said he would. God did to Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and gave Abraham a son in his old age and at the very time God had set. Abraham named him Isaac. When his son was eight years old, Abraham circumcised him just as God had commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Sarah said, God has blessed me with laughter and all who get the news will laugh with me. She also said, whoever would have suggested to Abraham that Sarah would one day nurse a baby, yet Here I am, I've given the old man a son. The baby grew and was weaned, and Abraham threw a big party on the day Isaac was weaned. But one day Sarah saw the son that Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham, poking fun, actually, literally, just laughing with her son Isaac. She interpreted that as poking fun. She told Abraham, get rid of this slave woman and her son. No child of this slave is going to share inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter gave great pain to Abraham. And after all, Ishmael was his son too. But God spoke to Abraham, don't feel badly about the boy and your maid. Do whatever Sarah tells you. Your descendants will come through Isaac. Regarding your maid son, be assured that I'll also develop a great nation from him. He's your son too. Abraham got up early the next morning, got some food together and a canteen of water for Hagar, put them on her back, and she put them on her back and sent her away with the child. She wandered off into the desert of Beersheba. When the water was gone, she left the child under a shrub and went off 50 yards or so. She said, I can't watch my son die. As she sat, she broke into sobs. Meanwhile, God heard the boy crying. The angel of God called from heaven to Hagar. What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy and knows the fix he's in. Up now, go get the boy. Hold him tight. I'm going to make of him a great nation. Just then, God opened her eyes, and she looked, and she saw a well of water. And she went to it and filled her canteen and gave the boy a long, cool drink. God was on the boy's side as he grew up. He lived out in the desert and became a skilled archer. He lived in the Paran wilderness. 
and his mother got him a wife from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. We've heard a lot in the last 20 or 30 or I don't know, 40 years about reclaiming family values. And sure enough, our family's values seem to be deteriorating in, in whatever way that we keep score. I'm not sure that's true, but at least it seems to be true. And if we listen to those preachers like James Dobson, they are very clear that it's true and that what we need to do is to get back to biblical family values. And again, I don't disagree that we need to get back to family values, but I'm not quite sure that it's the biblical family values I just read about that we need to get back to. While on the surface this may seem right and great, a closer look at these texts may cause us to think twice about using the Bible as a model for good family values. It all starts with Abraham, whose name to begin with was Abram or Abram. In Hebrew, the first two letters, Av, A-V means father, and Abram means a mighty father. God chose Abram to be the first father at the top of the family tree for all the Jews, Christians, and Muslims in the world. God chose him so that he would instruct his children and his household after him and keep, help them keep the way of the Lord by doing what was right and just. But in those days, doing what is right and just isn't what we would claim to be right and just. In those days, when Abram and Sarah left their father's home to go to the land that God would show them, that was not right and just according to the family values. This was a terrible taboo, an act of disrespect to the father against all cultural laws and relationships of being a son, especially first sons through the law of primogenitor were expected to inherit their father's land or their flocks and follow in their footsteps. All sons were expected to hang around the father's house and to help out all of their life. When you marry, you bring your bride in and now you are part of a larger family unit. It's almost impossible for us to understand how radical Abraham leaving his father's house really was, and it still is in many cultures. In ancient times, in Greece and Rome, the basic social unit was the family. Religious rituals were performed around the fire and the family hearth, with the father serving as the priest, offering sacrifices and libations and incantations to the spirits of dead ancestors. That was, that was the way of culture in Abraham's time. And the power of the father was absolute. Wives and children had no rights, no independent legal personalities. They just had to follow the father. Many churches, unfortunately, have been built on this model. 
taking away all choice from women and children and even members who instead are called to just follow the authoritative father. Women were property and could be outcast by the head of the household, the father at will. And each family had its own gods, and the father was the sole intermediary between those gods. God, the, the, the father had all the power. There was no sense of an individual in our modern sense of democracy in our American world today. No sense of being an individual in the modern sense. There's no such thing as personal independence. You follow the rule of the father. There were just families under absolute rule. Mafia families are like this, right? Following the tyranny of the godfather or communism? No independence, just following the father figure of whoever's in charge or fascism or cult religions and once in, if you don't follow the Father's rules, you will never, ever be part of the family anymore. You'll be exiled. Luckily, we don't live in a world in this country like that. But it's how it worked thousands of years ago, and it still does in some places. And this story of Abraham and Sarah brings a radical break to this way of life. It's it's demand for monotheism as God being one, not many, throws out all of those sacrifices to dead ancestors and forbids any attempt to communicate with the spirits. And only after the Father has pointed out that it is not me but God that we are called to follow does this begin to take some shape. And Abraham was that father. The changes were dramatic in the culture in which they lived, but, and it did not happen overnight. It never does. It never happens without wrenching family dislocations and splits. So beginning Abraham's story, he had to leave his father's house to separate from his father and when he pushed his son Ishmael out of the family and took Isaac up the mountain in the next chapter we will look up, 22, and threatened to take his life in the binding of Isaac, Abraham pretty much separated himself not only from his father but also his two sons. And it turns out that this is one of the gifts of the passage, this act of separation by Abraham, an act which undermines that totalitarianism of the family being all one with no dissent, with no argument, everybody just having to go along. That whole patriarchal plan is wrenched up by Abraham, who now becomes the father of many nations. Abram Ham, the father of many nations. Sarah with him. Sarah was even, was even doing all she could knowing that she was barren 
knowing that he had been called to be the father of many nations, she was doing all she could to make it work, even to the point of letting her maid, Hagar, go into Abraham and be her surrogate for his child, something Abram really didn't object to too much. And then when Hagar got pregnant, she began to proudly display her pregnancy in front of Sarah, which, as you can imagine, only made Sarah that much more envious. So Sarah told Abraham that they, she, with her pregnant child, needed to leave the father's house and get out of her sight. And she did until God brought her back. When she finally gave birth, God called his name Ishmael. When Ishmael grew up after he was, after he was old and after Isaac had been born finally and weaned, they're playing in the yard and Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac or laughing with him. And Sarah again sends Sarah, uh, excuse me, uh, Hagar out through the way of Abraham into the wilderness where Hagar faces her and her son's demise. Family values. And the angels came and told Hagar where the water was. It's all good, right? These family values. Even before the candles were blown out of, Ish, of uh, uh, Isaac's weaning party, she has sent Hagar and Ishmael into death. Now part of this is etymological. You know what I mean by that? It's a way to, to bring an understanding of how we ended up with Arabs and Jews. And this is an etymological story about that that tries to give it some sense. But etymology is surface. The deeper part of this is the wisdom that the story tells. And what we need to remember is that both sons Ishmael and Isaac were chosen by God to be a part of Abraham's family and therefore part of the covenant. What we need to remember is that all Jews and Christians and Muslims are part of that covenant. Children of Abraham, chosen by God. Even though at times it looks like the fathers that end up telling us who we are and what we do and what we're supposed to do in all of our different Christian, Jewish, and Muslim worlds look like something written by Mario Puzo. I don't think these are the family values we're talking about. The truth is that families are a complicated mess. Not the kind of families we grew up with, watching on TV and Leave It to Beaver and Father Knows Best and my favorite, The Donna Reed Show. Well, your favorite, The Andy Griffith Show. They were hilarious programs with 30 minutes, including commercials, that would start off with a problem and always end up with a resolution 
30 minutes. Bam, why don't our families work that way? Our families just seem to spiral deeper and deeper into tangled threads of miscommunication and hurt. And the more we try to fix it, there are always unintended consequences and it just gets more tangled. Now we have, or did, Dallas in the 80s, which looked something more like our families, or Succession Today, which is meant to be a parable for all of us. And since Abraham and Sarah, it's also clear that this has been true ever since. And, oh, yeah, I, wait a minute. I seem to remember Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Well, do I remember that it was Cain who didn't, who got so mad at Abel because God chose his offering and not Cain's that he killed him? Oh, the first family in the Bible, family values. You see, what I'm trying to say here is that what it means for us to grow up in faith and in emotional maturity is to realize that our families are not so perfect after all, not the ones that we grew up in or the ones that we now live in. When we get married, we are called to leave if we get married, we are called to leave our father and mother and cleave to our husband or wife, we are told. Says it twice, once in the Old Testament, and Jesus says it too. But it's usually the marriage itself that forces enough conflict and dissonance to start the process of leaving home. Like Abraham and Sarah, who left and to go off on our own to start our own family. Otherwise, we just stay continually fused together in what's called this uh, undifferentiated ego mass, the therapists say. Isn't that a great, an undifferentiated ego mass? That means to say, you can't ever be different than anybody else in the family because everybody's got to be perfect and, and everybody's got to march by the, by the same tune fused emotionally. It's what it means to be dependent. And it turns out that humans are the only animals that cannot push our young from the nest. <laughs> Look, I'm a father. I'll, I'll own it. And if we do push them from the nest, guaranteed there's going to be a string or two attached. <laughs> Usually guilt or money. So hopefully when things get bad enough in your marriage or in your life, you'll find somebody like a therapist and they'll help you discover that much of what we have learned in our family might need to be unlearned. And what is needed now is to separate ourselves from them in some way before we can connect again to ourself and our spouse and our friends and even God. Thanks to a really smart therapist named Murray Bowen, he came up with this whole theory called family systems. What he says is that the family, it's not ever one person that's the problem, the family is a system, and the system is always in its own place of being differentiated or fused, and the more anxious the family is, the more fused it becomes. Does this sound familiar? 
and, and, and the more fused it becomes, the more people have to, have to walk in lockstep and, or either just bail out and do something like, uh, who knows, some wild event to get them out of the system. But that's only being just as dependent on the system because you're overreacting. So he discovers that everybody in the family shares its own part of it. And like a mobile, it is in balance. And everybody plays a role. There's usually the hero or the first child or the person and the kid in the family who's the, the high achiever. And then there's always a, somebody who's maybe the black sheep or the scapegoat. And they don't ever live up to the expectations and are always causing problems. And there's usually if there's a big enough family, somebody who's a reconciler or a fixer. Uh, or some of the above, or all of the, you play different roles in the family to keep it all in balance. And if somebody says, I don't want to be a part of that mobile anymore, then everybody works overtime to bring them back in because if that one person changes in the family, then, then everybody else has to change in the family too because now it's out of balance. You see how that works? Yeah. Break it all down, it comes down to there's usually a victim, a blamer, and a fixer. <laughs> and each of us play different roles. And when we're under stress and anxious, we get even more fused together. This is what communism does, folks, and totalitarianism and cult religions and cult politics that demands that we have to follow exactly what the leader says and cannot disagree. And where did this come from? This whole idea of differentiating, of finding independence, of becoming a true self apart from this system. That, where did it come from? It comes from the Bible. It comes from this moment when Abraham and Sarah decide to break out of that ancient old system and go off on their own and become the father of many nations. Jesus did it. His family thought he was crazy half the time. Who is my mother and my father, he said. You are all my children of God. He broke out of the system. And what did he say? You have to leave before you can cleave. God created each of us in God's image. What a gift. With language and conscience and will, each one of us able to have a direct relationship with God without an intermediary, without a priest, without a father figure. Each one of us able to understand that we have some purpose in our life, some meaning to our life itself, that we are connected and, and we love our families, but we're also independent from them in, in some way we do not understand. And with Abraham and Sarah, we no longer have to stay in the system. That's what I love about Presbyterians. Most Presbyterians I know do not like to stay in the system. But you don't separate just to separate. You separate in order to come back more healthy and more able to connect. 
You must leave, yes, before you can cleave. Fully give yourself to someone else and to some other community takes our differentiating and then our commitment back. Separate, then connect. And all of this, thanks to Abraham and Sarah, as the way of faith and maturity. The old Irish poet John Donahue penned in his book great words to this, bless the space, bless the space between us. Let us pray. O God who calls us to be our own self in relationship with you, who tells us that our deepest identity is not whatever we claim on whatever alphabet list we claim it, but our, def our deepest identity is as your child made in your image, knowing that only you can give us the deepest, deepest need in all of our souls that we are loved as your child. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.